Hello and welcome to another episode in this experimental series about teaching and learning tabletop role-playing games. I'm Thomas Mandel and today isn't a typical episode of the Yes Indeed podcast. Instead, today I'm sitting down with Andrew Gillis, designer of Girl by Moonlight, a game of magical girls fighting off the darkness, published by Evil Hat, crowdfunded in 2023. It's based on Blades in the Dark, which can be a tricky system to teach, and I'm hoping that this episode will be a good introduction to Girl by Moonlight and other Forge in the Dark games as well. This series began as a post on the Indie RPG newsletter about how a lot of people seem to primarily learn games by being taught them. Usually this means they're a player first and learn the game from a GM before they ever crack a rulebook open. And with the rise of actual play streams of tabletop RPGs, I think a lot of people have started using them to learn games but often actual play streams and performers are incentivized to edit out all the stuff that would make it a good teaching tool. Character creation, game setup, rules, explanations, and so on. So I thought, what if I recorded someone teaching the game? It would be like, not exactly, but similar to the experience of having a GM teach you the game as you sit down to play for the first time. I think this could be useful to GMs who are going to run the game for the first time, might need some help with how to teach the players at their table. It could be useful for the players if they want to listen ahead before their first session. But in the end, I think, you know, I'm not sure, you know, how well this works or who it's for. I am just trying my best trying to create some resources to help spread this hobby that we all love. And, and this game in particular, which I think is amazing and I think more and more people should play also, uh, a big thank you to Diversity Saves, the organization whose grant helped me get the series off the ground. I'm really grateful and I'm committed to doing four of these. I have finished two of them. The first one was Apocalypse Keys and this is the second and the other two. I'm not sure which games to do. So if you have any suggestions, please hit me up. The final runtime of this episode is about one and a half hours long. You could, of course, listen to the whole thing from start to finish. But if you don't want to do that, I'll describe some of the structure and you can use the chapter markers and timestamps in the show notes to skip to the parts that you are interested in or want to refer to specifically. In the first section, Andrew introduces the game, explains what the session zero for Girl by Moonlight will look like. This includes picking a series playset, which is half setting, half campaign arc, and then we flesh out the premise a little bit. We don't do the full session zero process because coming up with a whole unique series premise takes a long time but it is a really fun thing to do and trust me if you have not tried the girl by moonlight series creation please do it's it's really great as a part of fleshing out the premise you have to decide some stuff about your team of magical girls and each player picks their role in the story and these choices segue smoothly into actually picking a playbook and filling out all your character details then in the next section, we get into character creation, which starts with picking obligations that are things that stress out a character. And it ends with picking a name and then coming up with some promises between our characters. These kind of define the relationship between the player characters. Over the course of character creation, Andrew explains all the mechanics that are connected to the character sheet or playbook. This includes actions which aren't quite skills, but they do decide how many dice you roll. They have names like Confess and Empathize, which I've never seen in a game before. 
And then there are also attributes called sun, moon, and stars. And these are connected to the obligations that give you stress and also how you resist consequences. After that, we zip through the whole play loop of Girl by Moonlight. So every every session or couple of sessions of Girl by Moonlight goes through these phases. We kind of zip through all of them. We start with the obligation phase and the downtime phase where we explore the lives of the characters. After that, we go into the mission phase. In the mission phase, uh, as we kind of play that out, Andrew teaches me the core mechanics of Girl by Moonlight, which is the action role. We also talk about position and effect, getting extra dice to roll, and also resistance roles that negate consequences that you don't like. Finally, after this quick mission phase, we talk about the fallout of the mission and then discuss the main pacing tool for Campaigns of Girl by Moonlight, which are these two progress bars on the series sheet that track whether we're close to defeating the darkness, if the darkness is close to defeating us. So yeah, feel free to skip to whichever section you think, but uh, that's it for my preamble. I will throw it I will throw it over to Andrew now to introduce the game and get us started. So Girl by Moonlight is a game about the tragic struggles and defiant triumphs of a group of magical girls resisting an oppressive society. It explores the heartbreak of denying who you really are and the transcendent power of relationships and community. It's a game in which the majority of the players, the protagonists, are a tightly knit group of magical girls. They're going to rely on each other to face and overcome both magical and mundane adversity, which the director is going to represent. And this game takes the magical girl genre and kind of uses it as a metaphor to explore stuff around queer and trans identity, self-actualization, self-realization, and the way in which people can band together to carve out space within a difficult or hostile world. Wow. Okay. So can I play this game if I don't have a lot of experience with the magical girl genre? Like how important is it to have those touchstones? So the touchstones can be helpful. I find that they're most useful right up front, just as a way to like get people on the same page. But as you play the game, it's going to tell you tell you things you need to know or guide you through making stuff that will work within the genre. So there's a whole process for series and character creation, and there's some structure to it. So if you don't know the genre, the game is going to take you through the process of making stuff within that genre, uh, whether you recognize it as being magical girl stuff or not, right? So so yeah, the game is going to help you through that. It doesn't need you to know. Okay, so you've told me a little bit about the game. I understand that at this point, we would probably do safety tools, go through set boundaries, maybe do lines and veils, something like that. And then after that, what would be the first part of playing Girl by Moonlight that we would get into? So the first thing that we need to do in order to play is to pick one of the four series playsets. Okay. And those are different spins on the genre and different kind of sets of content that we get to pick from. And so the four of them are At the Brink of the Abyss, Beneath a Rotting Sky, On a Sea of Stars, and In a Maze of Dreams. And they range from kind of foundational magical girl stuff inspired by like Sailor Moon or Steven Universe through darker stuff like Madoka, mecha anime stuff like Vision of Escaflone, and Paprika by Satoshi Kon or Serial Experiments Lane, these kinds of more cerebral dream exploring anime. So there's like a pretty broad range of stuff 
and we pick one slice of that we want to play in. And picking a series is a bit like picking a campaign, right? Like there's an arc that it will lay out for us that we're going to go through. And so it's a bit, it's half setting and half series arc, right? And do you have something that you recommend people start with or is there nothing like I mean, I definitely recommend that you pick whichever is most exciting to your table first and foremost. But if there's any doubt, At the Brink of the Abyss is the like core of the game. It's really going to be the most straightforward, both mechanically and thematically. And so it's a great place to kind of start out if you're fresh to the game. Cool, cool. So let's do Brink of the Abyss. What is the Brink of the Abyss series about? So it's about redemption and heroism. It has this kind of optimistic outlook. We see monsters, but they have human hearts. They can be redeemed or healed rather than just being defeated, destroyed, or whatever else. And today, I think we're going to play with the kind of ready-made version of the series that I have set up for like doing single-session play at conventions and that kind of thing. And so the pitch here is the Silver Star Knights race to reclaim the lost Nebula Crown. And so the protagonists all take on the role of one of the Silver Star Knights, who are these kind of college students who have inherited this mystical power from these these spirits of an ancient kind of magical royalty who, who are going to help them in their quest. And that they are that there have been these ruins that have been uncovered at their university, and within those ruins is the lost nebula crown, this magical object which the evil Queen Charybdis is trying to claim for her tyrannical empire that is waking back up from sleep as these ruins have been unearthed. And so it's kind of a mix of like an urban setting with a bunch of like secret hidden magical stuff buried just under the surface. Okay, awesome. That's really cool. If we had done this whole procedure, which is what everyone will be doing when they play this game for the first time. My understanding is that we answer a bunch of questions. Is that correct? I just want to make it clear that this is not pre-decided in some way, that what we're doing is kind of not the norm here. I just want to flag that. Yes, exactly. So every series will have a creation workspace as part of its little packet of play materials. And so we would go through a set of questions and everyone at the table has input. It's not like the director makes up the villains on their own and the protagonists just fight them. Everyone has a say in what the adversity is, what the mundane world is like, what the kind of origin story of the characters and their powers are. And within that process, we also pick stuff like what your kind of broad character concept is and what playbook you want to play. And then we kind of round out some details about the group before we go into character creation specifically where each player is going to make their their own individual character that kind of comes last in the process okay so i am going to be making a character and you're going to be leading me through that i get it i guess i am making a silver star knight uh, based on what you said and i looked at the playbooks beforehand and i thought it might be cool to play the playbook called the enigma great and the Enigma is a character who has a mask and has a secret identity. I think it's I think it's cool because I've seen this trope before. And it's very cool to play this character, which is usually not a character that is a protagonist of the story in the in the shows that I am thinking about. Yeah, they're kind of they're in like the outer orbit of the <laughs> yeah. group and they're only kind of they're an ally or they're on the same side, but they work mysteriously <laughs> yeah. and they're always standing on like silhouetted on a rooftop with their cape blowing in the wind and all this kind of stuff, right? So it, 
yeah, the playbook leans into giving you opportunities to do that kind of stuff, which is really fun. Okay, so if I want to play an enigma in the Silver Star Knights, I'm guessing that I'm the one member of the group that wears a mask and keeps my identity a secret. Okay, so what is the first thing I should do in character creation? So once you've chosen your playbook, we pull any relevant stuff from the series that we would need. So like what our obligation is, what role you chose kind of during that process, what we know the kind of magical origin of the characters to be, that kind of stuff. We would write all that down because we know that already. And then you provide a detail for your obligation, which in this case, we know that we're all university students. That's kind of our day-to-day life that we're going through. So you might say I'm a music student or I'm the a professor at the school or whatever way you want to fit yourself into that little part of the world. That would be your first step. Then we'll assign action ratings. We'll choose special abilities. You create a couple of supporting characters, and then you name your character and introduce them to the group. So role and background would happen as part of series creation. So we would all collectively decide kind of what what our magical origin is. You would then pick a role. There's a list of different roles that okay. are part of the series. And those are prompts. So some examples of roles that you might pick in Brink of the Abyss are loyal knight, hopeful suitor, secret lover, forgotten child, demanding mentor, these kinds of things. So it's like a high level kind of character concept and you can pick one or two. So it might be a mix of like, yeah, I'm a loyal knight and a secret lover. And that's that tension between those two ideas is where my character comes from. That's really interesting because my playbook is already a role, right? To some extent, I'm the enigma. So what is the relationship between if I'm the enigma and I also pick secret lover because that fits as a secrecy thing happening in both cases. Yeah, that's kind of the idea. So, right. So we start with a role, right? Everyone picks a role. And then the next thing in series creation that we do is that each protagonist is instructed to select a playbook that reflects the roles they have chosen. So you make that choice and they're kind of meant to lead you in a couple of different possible directions. Something like a hopeful suitor or secret lover that could, a secret lover could be the enigma, right? Where it's like, oh yeah, I'm leading into the secret part. You could be the outsider or the time traveler where they have a special rule that points at a specific character. And you might say, yeah, the character that points at, that's my lover. So there are a bunch of ways that you can spin these, but they're there to kind of help you towards those seven playbooks and the kind of tropes and concepts that they represent. Okay, Okay, very cool. So if you were playing this game, again, just thinking about what would happen in a normal situation that wasn't this, this teaching episode. If you were playing this game, we were doing series creation and there would be a time where we would have to pick roles. I would pick a role. What would you do as the GM to frame me picking this role and connecting that to picking these playbooks, right? Say in the role, I pick the loyal knight or the secret lover. Would you look at these playbooks and go like, oh, maybe this playbook fits. If you've picked that role, then go with this one. Is there some kind of direct relationship between them? Yeah, I think usually, in my experience, at least players tend to connect those dots pretty comfortably. But yeah, if ever, if anyone's having any doubt, there's no, no reason why anyone can't chime in with a, oh, you're doing, you're a secret lover. That would be really cool if you were this, that, or the other okay. playbook. I think having a good open channel between the players during these, like part of why it's all built to have everyone do this together is so that there can be that exchange of ideas and that cross pollination happening, because I think that's really, a big part of the fun of role Yeah. 
Yeah, and I didn't say it before, so I say it now because we are talking about series creation again. The process of series creation with your questions that you have written down and picking from the choices that you've given, that's a really fun process to go through. It really feels like at the end of it, it feels like we're pulling off something cool, you know, that we have made this unique and coherent premise that didn't exist 15 minutes ago. And yeah, I'm very excited for other people to try it and find out whether they like it as much as I do. Yeah, and I've designed this process and hopefully the outcomes from people doing this process are very reliably fun and engaging adversaries, cool and relevant worlds. There's a cohesive team and group of characters that are going to then square off against it. It's meant to make sure that you get to a good starting point for your game. And I, I like to think it works, but I think I think it works. And I think more and more people are going to start doing stuff like this as as time passes and this will become more popular. OK, but getting back to character creation, what is background? So background is it's kind of a deliberately broad term. So if you want to put just details about your character or your kind of backstory okay, okay. in there as some quick notes. You're welcome to do that. One thing that I find kind of always ends up going in there is we have this question in series creation that is, what is our magical origin? Which for our thing is that we're this, it's built out of the prompt reincarnations of interstellar royalty. So this idea that we have inherited some magical kingdoms structure and that we're new embodiments of those roles. So someone is the, the moon princess and wow. whatever okay, else. Yeah. And so you can, at minimum, you can put that in there and you might put your spin on it, right? You might say, I'm the moon princess. You might say, I'm the moon princess. Also, I'm a total klutz. I'm failing high school. And that could be your character background, right? And it's just a place for you as a protagonist to like put some notes about your character. And so you can look back to it and remember like, what's my deal? Oh yeah, that's kind of interesting. So I could put down something like High school overachiever, comma, court wizard. Okay, very cool, very cool. So name is last. The first thing you do is detail your obligation. So that's how you fit into that day-to-day -day life, okay. which are in our cases, universities. So like some examples from the kind of one-shot setup, one character is a music student. And what makes it so stressful is that she is really into like some new style of music, <laughs> but they make her play this really like formal kind of state sanctioned music at school, right? So she has this duality to her life where she can't express herself fully musically in that way. Okay. I think the thing that comes to mind, again, going by my rule of going with the obvious thing that comes into my mind in these situations, I think what seems interesting to me is if my character was some kind of prefect or a teaching assistant, some somebody that the professor, somebody in between the professors and the students. And my job is to some extent boss around the students, which I do not enjoy, right? Because, and that's why it's a source of stress because I have to kind of be a cop and stuff like that. And it's not fun. Yeah. The classic middle manager thing of being stuck, trying to protect the people beneath you from the people above you, but beholden to all the, what all the people, yeah, absolutely. Cool. So I have picked my obligation. What comes next? So next up, we're going to do action ratings. Okay. And so I guess we will need to introduce the idea of action ratings and attributes. And so every character has the same set of nine actions that they will use during the course of the game. And you have a rating in those, which sets how many dice you get to roll while you're doing that action. 
and the actions are uh, defy, empathize, express, confess, forgive, perceive, and analyze, conceal, and flow. And so those are the things that, when your character does those things, matter in the game, and those set off a kind of mechanical response within the game. So the game is really interested in what it means to empathize with someone or to confess your true emotions to them or to hide from the world, these kinds of things. Those are what the characters end up doing that the game takes an interest in. Okay. And those actions are organized into what are called attributes, which are three kind of categories, each with three actions in it. And so there's sun, moon, and stars. And those attributes are used when bad things happen to your character. You're going to roll those attributes to try to resist those bad consequences. And so each one corresponds to a different kind of bad thing and represents a different set of virtues, essentially, within the character. Okay, I love these words. I have never played a game that uh, uses actions like this. You know, I've never rolled to confess or rolled to forgive. So that is really exciting. Okay, so this is a D6 uh, dice pool system like Blades in the Dark. So the number of dots here next to these words are the number of dice I would roll. I get that. I see the enigma starts out with one dice in express and one, or die rather, one die in conceal. Conceal makes sense. I, I get that for my character. I, I, I imagine I'll be concealing a lot. And express is interesting. I like the idea that I might be good at expressing my feelings. Yeah, and express is specifically about using your words with an agenda in mind. So it might be that you hide your true feelings, but you're trying to convince someone to do something there's a layer of manipulation within Express as well, and a bit of, they're a bit veiled. It's not confess, which is, I reveal the, the truth of my heart to someone else very naively. Express is a little bit more cagey. Could you walk me through how some of these might work? Like, what's a cool way I could use empathize? Yeah, so I think empathize is a really good example because it is a little bit more... Like, how do you actively empathize? What makes empathize an action within the game, yeah. right? So it's described as when you empathize, you understand a person intuitively and feel their emotions as if they were your own. And so empathize is really useful for getting information from someone else about like what their character is feeling or what's motivating their character, which could be really useful for then for if we're playing a setting in which monsters have human hearts and they could be healed or that there could be reconciliation, then it's really important to know why someone's doing what they're doing or if they're if they're hurt, if they're carrying some trauma with them. Empathize is going to kind of help you get to the root of that. And so you might use it to like listen to someone's story and gain an understanding of the perspective, or you might touch a horrifying monster and feel the frightened heart that beats within it. It's meant to be this way of opening a channel of communication uh, for you as a player, right? Like you step out of your character and say, okay, well, what is my character learning about your character in this interaction that we're having? Um, one of the, there are a few different actions that are like this, but they're good for kind of gathering information within the game. Um, something like forgive is a really good example of something where you could follow up on that information. So when you forgive, you show that you care for someone despite a mistake that they have made. So you might offer a chance for reconciliation to a friend that wronged you, or you might embrace a monster that was once human in the hopes that it might be human again someday. So Forgive is the, it's the one-two punch, right? Of understanding what's going on and what their needs are. And then maybe with something like forgive, you could start to mend or heal that relationship or connect. Nice. That's, that's really beautiful. I love the idea that this game is setting me up to think like that and play like that. 
And I guess the important thing for me to remember is that this is all going to flow from the fiction, right? Like I'm going to have to do something that is me empathizing with this monster in this example. And then the director might explain then why that's difficult. And then I might have to roll or whatever. It's not just that I say, okay, I forgive them. And then we roll dice to see whether I've successfully forgiven them. Part of how I like to describe it is this idea of, so when we talk about action, often the thing that we're thinking about is like physical space, right? Like jumping over things, fighting people. There's like a terrain that's at play. You might have the high ground or some other advantage. Whereas in Girl by Moonlight, that stuff is happening, but there's also this emotional terrain that we are engaging within. There are secrets that are hidden that you want to uncover about people and their motivations, or there are feelings that they have that are buried under the surface. And so I try to encourage people, both directors and protagonists within the game, to be really upfront about what's going on with their characters and with the like emotional space that they're occupying so that then play can happen on that emotional terrain, right? We're not just describing where people are standing and how many six foot squares are between me and my opponent. It's about how are you feeling? What's your facial expression like when you deliver this monologue? These kinds of details are the terrain of play that really. Yeah. Now that you mention it, I think there's basically one action here that is very clearly physical to me, which I guess is flow. Because the way I understand flow is that it's the action for moving gracefully through a situation, which, which could be like a physical space, being able to flow through that space. And then defy seems like the one that I would roll when I was trying to fight something. Yeah, there is still that option if you just want to fight something, but both flow and defy are designed to be a little bit flexible in what they might yeah. represent. Flow isn't purely moving yeah. with grace, though it does include that. And Defy isn't just fighting things. It can also be about like standing up to someone, right? Who's bullying you or whatever else. So there is a kind of social or emotional aspect to those as well. Nice. Nice. And what page number are the explanations for all of these actions on? These are all listed on page 32. Cool. So how many actions, uh, how many action dots do I have to add to my character right now for us to get going? So for right now, you just need to add a dot to one of the actions that you don't already have a dot in. Okay, I like the idea of being able to empathize well, so I'm going to go ahead and take a dot in that. Great. And that's it. That's it. You don't get to do a ton by yourself. You need to rely on your team to, to make things happen. <laughs> and so part of what will give you a little extra boost, though, is that you're also going to choose a special ability and a transcendent ability from your the list on your sheet. And these are extra kind of either circumstantial or situational powers that your character has. So for example, the Enigma has an ability called working from the shadows. When you secretly set up another character's action, you roll an extra die. And if they succeed, you get some XP. Nice. So in that way, even if you only have one dot or no dots in a given action, if you're doing it secretly to set someone else up, you're still going to get a free die to roll that. So there are some kind of bonus dice and other ways that you can increase your odds of success in the game. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned transcendence, and I guess we'll talk about that later, but I understand it to be like, okay, that is the term for me transforming into my magical girl self and the stuff that I can do because of that. Yes, exactly. So there are both action dots that are only available when you're transcended, 
as well as special abilities that are only available when you're transcended, just to give a little extra oomph to that aspect of your character. Right? All right. So I've got my action ratings. Could you explain attributes? What does sun, moon, and stars mean? Yes. So the three attributes, sun, moon, and stars, kind of represent different virtues or aspects of the character. And so characters with sun, like a high sun stat, it's showing how much compassion and resolve they have. And so you're going to roll sun to resist consequences of violence and fear. Moon represents a character's sincerity and clarity. So you're going to roll moon when you resist a consequence of despair or heartbreak. And stars represents a character's cleverness and elegance. And you roll stars when you resist a consequence of panic or social pressure. Okay, so I've got my obligation, I've got actions, I've got attributes. What comes next? So special ability and transcendent ability. So I'm looking at these and like in a lot of Forge of the Dark games, these do require me knowing a little bit about how the game works. So if I'm playing the game for the first time, would you recommend that I pick these up a little bit later while we play? Uh, I mean, I, I noticed that you've also arranged the abilities by what's easiest and most straightforward being the first one. Yeah. So if you're uncertain, you can just pick the one at the top of the first one in the list. It's usually the most kind of core or straightforward one. I've tried to arrange them all that way, especially with new players or people who are new to the game. I think it's totally fine to hold that for later. And when you have a moment of play where you're like, oh, there's this thing I want to do and it's in this special ability, I'm just going to fill that in and do the thing. That's totally fine too. Sometimes people don't like playing that way because they end up never assigning the thing or whatever. <laughs> like I, I encourage people to pick something so that it helps form their identity of their character. But yeah, absolutely fair to let okay. it hang. Cool. So I'm going to mark that. And looking at the list of transcendent abilities, I like the first one there as well, which is called Big Reveal, which says that when I transcend, I can disappear and reappear somewhere else. Yeah, on a rooftop with the moon, full moon behind you and your cape blowing in the wind, right? Like, yeah, you got to occupy your magical idiom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I'm thinking about. My dream for this character is to empathize with people and to look cool while doing it. Exactly, exactly. So next up, we create supporting characters. In this case today, I don't think it's going to matter much for our quick example of play, but basically everyone at the table is going to make two additional characters to kind of fill out the world a little bit. These can be family members, friends, rivals, mentors, anyone you think of that has some connection to your character and seems like they might be interesting to include in the story. And then the director kind of takes on playing those characters while the story unfolds. So in my case, I might make up the professor who I work for and, and report to. Yeah, exactly. And so the next thing we would do is name your character. Okay. And if you're struggling with a name, there is a name list in each series that you can pull from, or you can read the name list and be like, it's not that my name is Philip or whatever, right? Like it's there if you need it, but you don't have to use it. Okay. So if name is the last thing, I realize that I have not picked a role or a background and also promises. When does that stuff fit in? So yeah, our next step that we're on here is to name your character. And so every playbook is going to have, it's going to have two sections for a name. There's a mundane name and a true name. And each of those has two prompts within it. So for the Enigma, your mundane name options are a forgettable name or a puzzling name. Okay. And then for your true name, you can have a dashing name or an imperious name. 
And it's up to you what satisfies those. But I find that it's helpful to give people a little bit of a push with a name to say, like, here's a, an, an aesthetic for your name, a vibe for your. And it's also fun to say, oh, yeah, my name is this. And that's a puzzling name for this reason. It lets it gives you a prompt to kind of build some extra context to why your character is named what they are or what it means that your character is named what they are. Okay, I like this combination a lot, uh, a forgettable name and then an imperious name. I like that duality there. So the first name that comes to mind, for forgettable name is is a simple name like Mary, like just a, just a common name. And then my true name, this imperious name is something like Lady Vengeance. Yeah, exactly. Something big and over the top as befits an enigma with their cool mask and everything else, right? Yes, absolutely. And so once you've named your character, then you kind of introduce them to the rest of the group in case you haven't already made that all clear, just so everyone knows who's playing who and what's what with each of those characters. And then the absolute last step that we do in character creation is write promises. And promises are, it'll be like, if I have a character and you have a character, right, you would write a promise from Mary or from Lady Vengeance to my character. And those also have uh, this idea of a prompt, right? So the Enigma has a secretive promise and an intimate promise. And you, again, get to decide kind of what satisfies that prompt. But a promise is like a something that you want for another character or something that you'll do for another character or that you want to get from them. They're kind of designed to make sure that all of the protagonists have some kind of loaded relationship with each other and that it's not just like, oh yeah, you're, there's you over there, we're friends, it's whatever. No, it's like, I will keep your secrets or I won't let uh, my love for this person stop me from doing my duty or you know whatever the case may be, that there's this agenda that you have for everyone else in the group. Okay, that's a really cool idea. I like the fact that after I write these promises, I will have a high stakes relationship with my other players and characters. Yeah, and it it can be big or small. It doesn't have to. I mean, you're the enigma, so everything's kind of high <laughs> drama with you. But in general, they don't need to be huge. They don't necessarily need to be something that's said out loud. But having a little bit of hope for the other characters and a little bit of getting involved in each other's lives is the idea. Okay, so if you were playing a character and you were the guardian playbook, something like that, then... The first thing that comes to mind when you say something like an intimate promise is when we're done with college, we'll run away together to another country or something like that. That sounds great. Yeah. And as a guardian, I might have a protective promise. And since you're the enigma, I could have like, I won't let Mary get into any trouble or like get tangled up in this magical hero stuff. And I'm playing with a sense of dramatic irony because I, as a player, know that Mary is Lady Vengeance, but my character does not. And so it's really fun to have a little bit of that going. Cool. Cool. I feel like we have this strong series concept. I have a strong picture of my character. I assume at this point, everyone in the table will have that as well. What happens after this? Do we start playing? Yeah. So at that point, we are ready to start the cycle of play. And so the game has this kind of overarching structure that so at any given moment, we kind of know what it is that we're supposed to be doing. And the so we have like our series, right, which is like one continuity of play. That's the biggest layer. And then within each series, we're going to have episodes and each episode is one complete cycle. 
And then each episode has an obligation phase, a downtime phase, a mission phase, and a fallout phase. And so the obligation phase is where we see that obligation that we picked back in series creation. We see the characters dealing with that. So we, we are university students. We deal with all the day-to-day kind of stresses and struggles of that. Then we would go into downtime, which is it's the weekend or it's after class or whatever, when the characters get to do what they want or need to do in order to help each other out, bond with their friends, or look into what's going on with the the big magical adversary that they're trying to figure out or track or undermine. And then once that's done, we go on a mission. So we pick something that we want to change in the world and we set out to do that. We do our best, but we might succeed, we might fail. And there's a clear goal to that. And it's chosen from uh, a couple of kind of prompts within the series. So there's uh, different mission tiers and stuff like that, which we don't need to get into. But basically, we get to pick, right? Are we facing a creature of the abyss or are we freeing a special person or place from the grip of this? For the one shot for this series, I have it be that we're reclaiming an object of power, which is we're going after the Nebula crown. We're trying to get this magical crown that Queen, the evil Queen Charybdis wants to get to secure her rule. We're going to take that from her. And one of our characters is going to be a rival to the throne of Queen Charybdis. And so this is an important thing that we're going to go try to get. And our mission is going to be, do we get that? Or does Queen Charybdis get that? Or is the crown destroyed? Or we get to find out what happens. Uh, And then after the mission, we have Fallout, which is kind of tying up loose ends from the mission and then also seeing how the world kind of reacts to that change. So if we claim the Nebula crown, maybe there's some knock-on consequence that we didn't anticipate or Queen Charybdis ramps up her campaign of terror or whatever the case may be. Basically, the director is going to randomly kind of spin up some new complication that gets injected into the story. And then we start the loop over again. We go back into obligation, etc. And there's an important thing in this game where because it has that episodic cycle, there's a reset that happens at the end of every episode. So we get a bunch of resources for our characters and we use those in the course of the episode. Any we didn't spend go away. And a lot of the like uh, wear and tear that we've accumulated also goes away. There's a bit of a wiping of the slate at the end of each episode. And I guess another thing that we didn't explicitly say yet is that you have this principle in the game called it's season two. Can you explain why you included that and what what that principle means? Yeah, so this is on page 106 in the rulebook. I have this whole bit about we begin in season two. And so this is the idea that We take for granted this conceit that we are, if we're playing, we're in a series. This is season two of our imagined series. So there was, there was a season one in which some undefined stuff (laughs) happened. There's a little bit of like open space behind us. And we might say like, oh yeah, in season one, my character was on the side of the baddies and I have like recently converted to the good guy team now. And like, that's why I am the outsider, right? And I'm still kind of struggling to find my place and I I have a lot of friction with the other characters on the team, something like that. So it's to leave room for those kinds of choices. And this is built out of this broader, broader idea within Fortune of the Dark Games of we cut to the action where we want to start in the middle, pick the most exciting bit and start there. And then if we need to, if we need to be like, oh yeah, my character brought a backpack or whatever, like, cool, we can flash back to that, right? Like, we are not bound to a linear flow of events. 
because we're telling a story and stories can have flashbacks, recollections, fuzzy details that get defined later, these kinds of things. So it's an invitation to players to, to lean into that at the scale of the whole story and to have some space behind us where we can say, oh yeah, we've already like had the whole character introduction bit where we decided who the leader was. That's settled. It's this person. Let's move on. We don't have to like hash out all of that in character. Now we don't have to feel obliged to do that kind of stuff that we might not find interesting, right? It's just to say, do what you're interested in, leave anything else to be defined as needed and keep your story moving. I really love that. I imagine that there's so much heavy lifting that it cuts out and thinking of all these awkward introduction scenes and stuff like that, which you can sometimes feel obligated to do because you think that's what would happen in a story like this. But yeah, a principle like that where you say we all know each other, I think that's great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. So the first phase is the obligation phase. And I guess this is where my obligation as a prefect of some kind comes into place. So yeah, explain to me, like, what do we do in the obligation phase? Yeah. So say if I'm the director and you're a protagonist, right, you're going to tell me, yeah, so I'm the prefect. Today is difficult because of this thing. We're going to have a, have a little conversation about like, what's going on? What's a slice of Mary's life like? And we might do a little back and forth. I might ask you some questions. It's an opportunity to kind of expand on the mundane world and what's going on within it. And then you are going to roll your lowest attribute and mark six minus the result of your roll in stress. So basically the day-to-day grind is going to wear your character down and we're rolling to kind of see how much, but it's always, the world is always hitting you where you're weakest. So it takes your lowest attribute and that's where the pressure kind of breaks your character. And that's where we see see this bad thing trickling through. Cool. I have an attribute which has no dots in it. So I guess I would roll zero dice. Yes. And in this game, when you roll zero dice, you roll two dice and take the lowest result. And so say you rolled a one or you rolled two ones, right? It's just like you're doomed. Then you would take six minus one stress, right? So five stress, which is about half of your stress track. So it would be a really, that's a really bad day, right? And we might talk about like, oh yeah, that seems like that's really bad. Like, how's your character coping with that? What's going on? Okay. I have this idea that my professor, something goes, something goes wrong in the classroom. Maybe something goes missing. And the professor tasks me with finding out who took it. And that involves me kind of ratting out one of my classmates maybe. And that is extremely stressful. So I roll the dice. I get a one and a two. And because I choose the worst one, that means I have to take a one and six minus one, I have to mark five stress. So can you explain to me what the stress track represents for my character? Yeah. So your stress track, it has nine spaces on it. And you can think of this as sort of a resource that you spend and it accounts for your character suffering bad things like an obligation, but also when you kind of grit your teeth and push yourself beyond your normal limits, or when you're going out of your way to help a friend, these kinds of things, those might cost you stress. And when your stress track fills, then you are, you run the risk of falling into eclipse, which is this like big inversion of your character where their whole idiom is flipped on its head and they have to figure that out and reconcile that. You get to have your kind of brief villain arc. (laughs) which is really fun to play out. 
And so, yeah, stress is this resource that you spend during the course of obligation and the mission phase in order to get more stuff, get extra dice, resist consequences, mitigate bad things. That can. Okay, so I get a bunch of stress from from these responsibilities and these obligations. We go on these missions. I get a bunch of stress by helping my friends and avoiding consequences. And then I fill up the track and I fall into eclipse. So what does it mean when that happens? What, what was the phrase that you used? <laughs> that you go on your villain yeah. arc? <laughs> so it, it differs depending on which playbook you are. But for the Enigma, I'll just read the prompt because it's great. So when you eclipse, who you really are clearly isn't enough. Only the mask is worthy of their love. You reject all aspects of your everyday self and embrace the most superficial aspects of your persona. Give them what you know they want, effortless beauty and extravagant drama. You can only escape Eclipse when someone shows you the truth of their heart and you reveal your identity to them. They add a promise about keeping your secret. And so it sets you up on this kind of meltdown where your character is torn between their mundane self and their heroic alter ego. They reject this mundane part of themselves and only lean into the the worst elements of their persona. And then, yeah, you need someone else to be open with you. And then you, in return, are open with them. You tell them about your secret identity. It's this whole loop that you go through. Okay. And so that's the kind of narratively, thematically what's going on. But there's a cool mechanical thing that goes on here too, which is that when you go into Eclipse, you're at that full stress. You have nine stress. You get to then spend stress by erasing stress from your sheet. So it gives you a bunch of extra resources to play around with. So you can do big dramatic things in those moments and get to kind of take the spotlight for a little while while you're dealing with this crisis okay. and your teammates get to kind of come to your aid and, and help you through this crisis. So Eclipse is, it might seem like it's a bad thing, but actually it's a really cool, fun, like spotlight moment for your character where you get to do a bunch of melodrama get a bunch of extra mechanical stuff to play around with and yeah, take the spotlight from. Yeah, I love the the prompt here uh, that you've written, which says that I, I think that they only love the mask and not me. I think that's very cool. I can definitely see myself being extremely melodramatic about that. And it's up to you as the player to lean into that however much you want and exactly what uh, face that crisis wears. But I'm hoping that those prompts are fruitful enough that, yeah, it's going to give people good stuff to, to dig into for their character. Okay. So that is the obligation phase. And then what happens next? So next up is downtime. And downtime has a kind of a set of four specific things that we get to do in downtime, plus some extras depending on what we might add on later. But the core stuff in downtime is that you can make a connection with one of the other protagonists, which is where you like hang out and do something nice that you think that they would enjoy. And the two of you can bond. And that gives you a resource called links, which you can then cash in later to get some extra benefits, either during the mission or whatever. Um, you can investigate the your magical adversary. And so that is a way that you kind of set yourself up for success within the mission. You basically tell the director what you're doing to look into what evil machinations are afoot with your with your adversary, and then they're going to kind of answer some questions that you ask them from some lists that you have available to you. So it's a good way to kind of flesh out what the baddies are up to, what's going on in the world, this kind of stuff. 
And then there are a couple others that are less relevant on our first session here, but you can help a friend recover from harm that they've sustained, which does what it says on the tin, but no one is hurt at the start of the story, thankfully. And the other thing you can do is work on a long-term project. And a long-term project is pretty open-ended, and it's meant to be this thing that's going to come up through the story, or if you have an idea for something that you want to build or someone who you want to convince of something long-term, or if you want to start a protest movement or whatever the case may be, you can say, yeah, I'm going to work on this long-term project. The director will tell you how long it's going to take and you kind of chip away at it. So those are the things that we can do in downtime. Okay, cool. I get this hanging out with the, with a friend action. I think that's really cool. I think one thing to make explicit here that we didn't say in the obligation phase and this downtime phase is that like all of this is role played out, right? They're not just, I pick a scene and roll the dice or whatever. Yeah, I, they're a little bit flexible in that way, right? Like sometimes it might be glossed or kind of treated like a, almost like a montage okay. in a TV show where we get just like a light detail. Uh, or yeah, we can go in and have like in-character conversation. We can be describing scenes and these kinds of things. Um, it's flexible in that way and it's up to you. Uh, downtime has much more of a like frame a scene kind of style presentation to it, right? Where it's like, if you and I are making a connection in downtime, uh, I am obliged to say like, this is the thing we are doing together, right? Like I take you out okay. dancing and then I have to ask like, is this something that your character would enjoy? Like, how are they in the dance hall? Is this the thing yeah. that they're into? And then we kind of hash it out from there. So there's a little bit of like scene framing logic to it, but it doesn't, it can be a montage. It can be. 20 minutes of intense in-character dialogue, whatever we're in the mood for and whatever suits our culture nice, of play nice. is on the table. Okay, so in the downtime phase, I investigate some aspect of our nemesis, Queen Charybdis, and I find out something about the nebula crown that we're chasing. After that, we get into the mission phase, I understand. So how, how does the mission phase start? Yep. So the first thing we would need to do is kind of already done for us, right? We know that we want to reclaim an object of power to retrieve a lost relic that relates to the group's destiny. It's going to let us get an extra thing in our hideout afterwards. There's like some little extra benefits to this. But, you know, we know that we're after the Nebula Crown and that's our goal. That's our mission. And so from there to start the mission, we are going to make what's called an engagement role. And the engagement role is going to tell us how are things going in the moment that we kind of start our narration at. Because we're going to, as we alluded to previously, we're going to cut to the action. So we're going to skip to the heart of what's going on here. We're not going to spend a bunch of time carefully sneaking in or packing all the stuff that we need or whatever else. We're going to jump to the really cool critical moment of the story. And then if we need to, we might do some flashbacks to kind of fill stuff out, but we're going to start at the heart of the thing. And so the engagement role tells us, cool, all that stuff that we kind of glossed over, how did that go? How are things going now that we start this moment of action? And it could be that things are going really well and everything's according to plan, or that it's like a total reversal. It's an ambush. Everything's going badly and everything in between. So the engagement role helps us give a little bit of randomness to inject into that first moment. 
And so for the engagement role, it's a number of dice based on a kind of back and forth of questions that the director is going to ask uh, the other players. Um, but for our purposes here, as an example, um, we just need to roll a couple of dice, get a result, and go from there. We're just going to gloss over that stuff okay. for now. Okay, I, I roll a four. That's my highest dice. That is that put us. Yeah, so a four is kind of the, the middle result here. Uh, and so that means that we are... Well, it means a lot of <laughs> things, but first and foremost, mechanically, we'll start with mechanically, it means that things are at what's called a risky position by default to start. That's our baseline state of how things are happening. No one has a clear advantage. Things are going according to plan so far, but there's room for everything to still to go wrong. Everything kind of hovers on a knife's edge with what happens next, right? So we're in that that middle result where everything's kind of up in the air. But, you know, if we're imagining that we're starting this mission, right? You've given me that engagement role and I'm the director, then it's my job to narrate, okay, well, what does that look like? What's actually happening within the story in this moment? So your inv investigations led you to know that the Nebula Crown was kind of unearthed in this archaeological site that was happening. There was some construction on campus. And as they were building out the foundation for this building, they were like, oh, there are a bunch of ruins here. What's going on with this? And immediately the archaeology department kind of stepped in, right, and got involved and cordoned everything off. So it's this like semi-completed renovation construction site for a building that they were retrofitting. It's like the old, let's say it's the old student union building or something like that. It was like an amenities building. And so the whole thing has been cordoned off and it's being watched by security guards and stuff like that. And so you all had to, your whole team had to sneak in under cover of darkness. It's the middle of the night. We're in this, now this construction site, but it's not outdoors. There's like parts of the building are still kind of up above you, but they're all wrapped in plastic. Everything's kind of locked down in this way. And since the archaeology department came in and got involved, there's been this whole situation where they found something that was weird. It wasn't what they expected to find. And immediately a government agency <laughs> came in and started getting involved. So we got a bit of like an X-Files vibe in here too, where there's like strange devices are set up with weird scanners and meters, and they're studying these kind of alien looking ruins. And down at the lowest point of the excavation, which is this big kind of stepped pyramid kind of thing where they've dug down and down with this big ramp, there's a plinth and on it, we see this crown and it's not like just a piece of metal. I think there is like a metal ring, but around it, there's what looks like a NASA photo of a space nebula or whatever <laughs> with all the bright colors and the twinkling stars nice. in it. and it does like shift and pulse and change like it's alive or like it's moving and there's something kind of orbiting within that. So there's this glowing artifact that is clearly magical in nature. It's down there. And let's say that there are a couple of like shady government scientists in the whole like hazmat suit get up with the big garbage bag looking hats on with the little window in them and stuff like that. And one of them is like scanning it with some weird sci-fi device. And your little ragtag group of students, my little guardian, maybe Mary is there with them, or maybe she's sneaking in another way. We'll see. I've kind of stumbled into this, and the thing that happens right as we start, as we pick up play, is that everyone gets noticed, right? They're peeking up over the hill, and one of the guys in the like big suit like rotates his whole body to look up because he hears the sound, and he's like, hey, what are you doing here? And they're going to like 
sound the alarm. It's going to be a whole situation. Okay. 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 Hmm. What can I do right now to maybe diffuse this situation? We look like students and I guess there are no students allowed here at this point. Okay. So this is how I'm imagining the scene. This person has heard a sound. They've looked up. They think they've seen a student right now, but but they can't see very clearly because it's dark. They're going to pull a flashlight up and point it at what they've seen. And I think what I would like to do is to pull my friend down. And in their place, I'm going to push my cat out. So I guess the idea here is that there is a cat around the campus that I have made friends with. And I carry around in the crook of my arm all the time. So yeah. So I'm going to put this cat up there. So when the flashlight comes up, they see this cat. Yeah, it's not a person. Yeah. Cool. That's great. That's that's some quick thinking. This is an opportunity to say like a quick flashback of like, oh yeah, I bothered to bring this cat along because like I just don't leave home without my cat who is maybe this is like a Sailor Moon thing where the cat can talk and it's like the mascot of the group or maybe it's, it's just like a quirk of your character that they bring this along. But yeah, it's not a completely unreasonable thing. It's a little funny, but that's as far as it goes. So we could say, yeah, that flashback only costs you like one stress. So you can mark a stress to have this convenient cat here with you. And then just having the cat isn't enough, though. There is this tension here, right? Of like, there's a bad thing that could happen, which is that you could get noticed by this person down in the excavation. And so I think this does call for an action role, even still. It's a good bit of prep that's going to make it maybe a little easier but there's still a tension here of like yeah do you get noticed or not and so you as the protagonist you get to say what action you would roll to overcome this risk and so what do you think this whole decoy plan what action do you think best represents i think conceal sounds right i'm trying to conceal the fact that we're here and and trick this hazmat government agent yeah, I think concealed is a perfect and, and very reasonable choice here. One little detail that I'll add is as this person turns with the flashlight, you kind of see their face inside this big, weird hazmat suit thing. And Mary recognizes her professor oh, eh. that she works under. That whatever department you are staffed within, that this guy is somehow he's involved in this project as well. So it's a familiar face. It's not just a stranger okay. down there. But... Yeah, if you want to make a conceal roll to hide and to do this plan with the decoy of the cat, that to me sounds like it's not especially dangerous. I think this is still fair for it to be a risky maneuver and that it could have standard effect. It's going to, it's going to work. It's not like marginal or whatever, but let's talk about what exactly this idea of a risky position and a standard effect means. So when we go to make an action roll, we need to obviously like describe what we're doing. We pick an action, but there are these ideas of position and effect. And it's my job as the director to kind of respond with when you go to do something, I need to tell you how dangerous it is and how much you can get done. And that's what position and effect are there to represent. So for position, I can say that it's controlled, risky, or desperate. And those are basically to say like controlled means that it's very safe. If something goes wrong, it's not going to go too terribly wrong. It might just be that it takes a little extra time or that you have to take a different approach rather than like that things totally escalate or spiral out of control. When things are risky, the danger is more immediate. Bad things will happen if you screw up. 
And then with desperate, it's like really bad things are going to happen if it goes wrong. And even if you, even if it mostly goes right, it's still going to go very badly. It's your character is kind of overreaching or overextending beyond the limits of what they should be capable of doing. And it's going to spin very bad if it goes that way. And then when we talk about effect, effect is about how much you can get done. And so it's kind of a measure of your character's capacities as well as the kind of suitability of the action you've chosen. And another big consideration in this game is whether or not you're in your kind of magical persona and whether or not that's relevant, right? So here, it's just, as far as we can tell, it's just a guy that you're hiding from. It's not some magical beast with a million eyes that can smell you or whatever. It's just a guy. You have a prop to help you. You have a decoy. Like, it's pretty reasonable that this would be kind of standard, right? It would be effective and to the normal extent. But if this person had, like, magical vision where they could see through rocks or walls or whatever, then we might say, oh, yeah, like, putting the cat up there is going to have a limited effect. They might still be able to notice you. It's only going to kind of be partial. Whereas, yeah, if this person didn't have a flashlight and a rock had just fallen on their head or something, we might say, oh, yeah, you're going to have great effect. It's really easy to hide from that person. They're not really able to track you down or see you. They're busy having a rock fall on their head. So there's this range of possible dangers and range of possible kind of how much you can get done. And as the director, it's my job when you say what you're doing and how you're doing it, it's my job to respond with, yeah, here's how that's going to play out in terms of how much danger there is and how much you're going to accomplish. And you might take that opportunity to be like, oh, if I was like, oh, yeah, you're trying to hide from this person, it's limited and desperate. And you're like, oh, hmm, maybe I need to rethink this. Maybe hiding isn't the right move or whatever. And that's okay too. There's room to like renegotiate or adjust your approach if what I come, if what I come back to you with in this negotiation doesn't quite suit your needs or your desires for outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. The way I think about this is that we're all talking to figure out whether we're on the same page. And yeah, I agree. I think this is a risky action. I think risk is very clear. And so I think we are on the same page there. So yeah, every role I make as a player, we'll have this discussion about position and effect and we'll go through this negotiation. That's cool. So I guess I'm rolling conceal. The position effect seems fine with me. And if I'm rolling with conceal, I roll with one die. Yeah. And so, so yeah, you would roll your one conceal die, but you also have the option to maybe get some extra dice. Yeah. So for example, my guardian that I made up earlier, who's sneaking in there with you, they might help. Yeah. They might be able to quickly dash behind something or otherwise quiet down your other friend. They can participate in this. And so if they want to help you, they can spend a stress to give you a bonus die for your role. If no one's around to help you or you don't want anyone's help, you can also push yourself, which costs you two stress for a bonus die. And that's just you on your own digging deep and pushing past your normal limits. And we could also offer a poisoned promise, which is a little more complicated, but essentially I as the director or any other player can say, oh yeah, you need an extra die. Cool. Well, here is this weird new fictional bit that's definitely going to happen. And if you agree to that happening, then you get an extra die. For example, that detail of it being your professor who's in the suit instead of just a stranger, that could have been a poison promise. Maybe if I hadn't incorporated that detail now, it might occur to me and I could say, oh yeah, sure, you want an extra die? As you're ducking down and putting the cat decoy up, you see your professor's face and you recognize him in the suit. So 
poison promises are, are there as a way to inject a cool twist into the story. If a good one doesn't come to mind, you don't have to have one, but they're an option that's there as well, and they're often a lot of fun. Yeah, teamwork is such a big part of this game, clearly, and I like the idea that the Guardian is helping me. So you've already set up this detail about the professor, and you know, taking that into account, I think I have two or three dice at this point, but uh, I'm, I'm rolling these dice, I'm looking for the highest number, and there are some gradations, right? One to three, four to five, and then six. Can you explain those? Yeah, so you're going to roll your three dice. You're going to keep the highest one, and that's your result. And if your result is a six, then that means you succeed with no consequences. You get what you yeah. wanted, right? You're hidden. This person doesn't notice you. They go, huh, just a cat. Weird. And then like they go back to work. Yeah, like some kind of video game character or something. Yeah, they get the little exclamation over their head, and then they're like, huh, it was nothing. Must be the wind. And then they turn around. If you roll a four or a five, you succeed, but also with a consequence. So we might say, okay, yeah, like they sweep with the flashlight, they see the cat, and they're like, huh, it's a cat. That shouldn't be here either. And they go to like chase the cat away, right? They don't know that you're there, but they are going to walk towards you. It's a little more complicated. You're going to have to solve some new problems or work around it. And on a one or one to three, that result is only bad stuff. So that would basically mean like you go to put the cat up, but they sweep the flashlight over you before you're done. You lock eyes with your professor. They recognize you. They say, (laughs) Mary, and then like hit the alarm and all hell breaks loose. Right. And so if you're making a controlled role, all of those consequences would be scaled back a little bit, right? Like the worst failure case would be pretty mild by comparison. And if it were desperate, things would be much worse. So. There's this thing in the action role is that it includes both what your character is doing and like what other people are doing in response or what, what actions or what outcomes everyone else is going after. What your adversity is going for is kind of all rolled into one. And we resolve all of that in this one process rather than like you roll to do a thing. I roll to do a thing forth and forth. It's all buttoned up into okay. one. Okay. So I have. These dice, I roll them. Let's say I get two ones and a three. So my highest dice is three. That's a failure. And you've already told me what would happen in a failure. The professor is going to lock eyes with me and say, Mary? Right, yeah. And, and we kind of, we knew up front what the yeah. risks were, right? When we talked about this initial roll, right? You're peeking up over the edge and someone turns, someone might notice you. There's a clear thing that's at stake there. And so when the roll goes bad, we know that this is what's going to happen, right? And so... So yeah, this professor, let's call them Professor Hume. Professor Hume sweeps their flashlight along the edge and they see you holding a cat and the cat like arches its back and hisses and they go, Mary? And then immediately they're like, everything goes wrong. So they run over and like slam a big button on a console and like a bunch of floodlights turn on. The whole space is lit up. Their colleague who was examining the thing turns and goes, what's going on? They're like, they're intruders. There's this whole, the classic spiral happens. Okay. And so now we're in this state where, yeah, all the lights are on the cover of, cover of darkness and surprise are out the window and you've got to do whatever you're going to do quickly because things are going to escalate from here. Okay. So the thing about that, that I would really like to resist is because the, the consequence that hits me the hardest is the fact that this professor has recognized me personally and and knows me by name, right? Like everything else going on, that's fine. The alarm, the lights, all of that. But how do I go about resisting just that part? 
Yeah. So, so I've described what we could imagine as, yeah, like we can break this consequence down into some key kind of components, right? So like there's, does it matter that you personally get noticed? Does it matter that the lights get turned on? Right. And you can choose to say, yeah, if those are separate things, like I would like to, I would like to resist being spotted or being recognized by my professor because, you know, you show up to work the next day and they're like, why were you stealing artifacts from the excavation site? Like that's hard to answer for. Right. And so, yeah, when the director presents you with a consequence, you don't like that consequence. You don't want it to happen. You can say, no, I'm going to resist that. And you have the power to do so as a protagonist within the game. All that it requires of you is that you make a resistance roll, which is so the consequence that the professor recognizes you. Cool. They don't recognize you. He looks and he says, like, someone's there. Maybe the cat is positioned such that it's like your face is obscured. It just you just kind of get lucky in this moment. And instead of being like, Mary, he's just like, what the? And then realizes what's happening, hits the button. And so what I need from you is a resistance roll, which is you roll one of your attributes. I think in this case, I think it's a consequence of panic or social pressure. It's about being caught in that moment and keeping a cool head and just like still ducking out of the way rather than being like, it is I, Mary, (laughs) your student. Don't make it too obvious. Don't give it up. Right. And so that would be a resistance with stars. So you're going to roll, you're going to roll your stars attribute and then take the result and take six minus that result in stress. So there's a chance that you take no stress, right? If you roll a six, but you might take up to five. And the way the sheet is constructed, there's actually no number next to stars. So maybe you could just explain how you read how many points you have in stars. Right. How do you know? So the first column under each attribute, which has like a little line through all the action dots, those are the dots that count towards that attribute. So if you have one dot in conceal, no dots in analyze or flow, then you have one in stars. So that means that I can only have a maximum of three in any attribute, right? Because there's only three skills and there's only three spaces for a dot. Exactly so. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, because of my one dot in conceal, I have one point in stars. So I'll roll that. I'll roll my one die and I roll a four, which six minus four means I would mark two stress. Adding that up to my stress track, I'm at eight, which is one away from going into eclipse. And uh, yeah, so I'm very close. Yeah, sorry, you'd be at, you'd be at seven because your friend spends the stress to help you. You don't have to spend uh, it. I did a flashback. So you would have started with five. Oh, but you did a flashback. That's right. Good memory. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So five from obligation, one from the flashback, and then two from this puts you at eight. So you're close, but not quite triggering eclipse. So you make the roll. You've taken the stress. Yeah, I took the stress. I'm going to position a cat so that Hume doesn't see my face and recognize me. But the alarm's still gone off. At which point, I think it would be cool if I transcend do my whole cool magical girl transformation sequence. And then because of the ability I picked up, my transcendent ability allows me to disappear and then reappear wherever I choose, which means that after the whole cool sequence, I could just disappear and show up right next to the crown. Yeah, absolutely. I love this idea of like, you're caught, you just kind of like half panic and then just disappear. But yeah, exactly. So the, you, the moment you transcend, you may choose to immediately disappear and then may then reappear at any time in the place of your choosing, which does mean that, yes, you can be right down where the crown is as Lady Vengeance, your cool, magical persona, 
everyone is left kind of gasping, like, where did Mary go? What happened? Like, oh, there's a moment of confusion. You make your big dramatic entrance. What do you want to do now? That so do I have to do anything to transcend? Can I just do it? So, yes, in terms of like, does it need to happen at a specific time or do you need to do any particular bookkeeping? Nope, it's all good. You just decide when you transcend awesome. and it happens. I do want to hear as the director, like, what do you transform into? What does that transformation sequence look like? A little bit of a description like of that is customary and weird, especially for you as the Enigma. I'm a little curious about like, what is, what does the mask look like? And what is this new persona lady vengeance? So I assume Mary has to dive behind a rock or something like that. Uh, so people don't assume. Or actually, maybe that's funny as well. Like people just think Mary keeps disappearing and Lady Vengeance keeps showing up when these two facts are completely unconnected. I think that's also hilarious. Yeah, you <laughs> always run off at the most important moment and you're like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just a coward, I guess. Yeah, so I think Mary normally looks like an average student, looks kind of shy and, and timid. But Lady Vengeance has this very striking porcelain mask. It's like white porcelain. And then there's this jagged red scar that runs from top to bottom. And the red scar kind of matches her red dress. And yeah, I think I could go on about this, but for the sake of the episode, maybe that's enough detail. I'm getting a, a vibe for sure. So we're, for the purposes of our example, we're doing good. Yeah, exactly. So we see this, we see Lady Vengeance appear by this pedestal with the big with the crown on it i think professor hume has like ripped off their their hazmat like helmet and they go to like shove their colleague out of the way and they're trying to like grab the crown having seen that you're here now hume makes this like just they're just going for it if you're going to claim this prize he's going to do it first even if it's dangerous okay. and so what is what does lady vengeance do in this moment because if you do nothing Hume's going to grab it, and who knows what will happen when he touches this powerful, magical artifact. Okay, yeah, I definitely want to grab it first, but then I, I also want to delay Hume. So maybe what I'm doing is that as I appear, I'm going to push past him or trip him up and basically just kind of enact my vengeance on this person who I dislike. So I'm going to kick him in the knee as I pass, and hopefully he'll fall, and, and that'll stop him from grabbing the crown, and then I will, I will grab it and go. Yeah, the kind of, rather than there being like a scuffle or a challenge for it, you're going to put Hume in his place and take your, take the crown. That's right, yeah. yours. I love this. This is an opportunity, yeah, for timid Mary to pull one over on her crummy professor. So I think there is some danger here, but, you know, you're transcended. You're in your magical idiom. Professor Hume, for all of his authority, is still, he's just a man <laughs> in that sense. So... Yeah, like you're in a pretty strong position here, but what action do you think this is? How would you characterize putting Hume in his place like this? I think this is defy. Is it like a graceful maneuver that uses his own momentum against him? Or is it, yeah, is it really brutal, right? Are you just like, yeah, you're the, you're normally the big guy, but I'm putting you down. Cause I think defy is a good choice here. Yeah. Also, this is person is very literally my social superior, right? So this is as much about social defiance as it is you know, this physical action of, of kicking him in the knee. Yeah, no, that's great. So yeah, I think for Defy that this is, I'm going to say it's controlled. I don't think that Hume can really, he can't really touch Lady Vengeance in this moment, yeah. right? Like he's really not much of a threat. 
and we'll say standard effect. I don't, I don't think you're going to blast him <laughs> off of the face of the earth or anything <laughs> like that. It doesn't sound like, like your intent is that extreme yeah, yeah. either. So we'll just say standard effect. You can put him in his place and that's okay, fine. Okay. So I have no dots in defy. So rolling zero dice, which means taking two dice, uh, rolling two dice and taking the lower number. Yep. That's true. So here's where you might push yeah. yourself or I could offer you a poison promise. And I think my poison promise is this. You can take an extra die, but I'm going to start a clock for Professor Hume where he's going to remember this moment and he's going to swear revenge and he's going to, he's going to make some bargain or find some power some way, somehow so that he can come back around and he's going to be like the nemesis to Lady Vengeance going forward. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. That's really good. Yeah, it doesn't cost you anything for now. The best kind of consequence. Yeah, one that comes up later and you don't know how bad it is. Yeah. Yeah, I love those. Anyway, I will roll my dice and if I accept Poison Promise, I can't also push myself and take another die, right? No, those are mutually exclusive. Got it. Let's say I roll a six and that means there are no consequences. I guess I just succeed. Yeah, and so with your intent of putting Hume in his place and seizing the crown. You succeed in that. I think it's kind of undignified. He's like in this big clumsy hazmat suit and kind of like trips and falls. Like you help him trip and fall and he can only look up at you as you stand clutching the nebula crown and then like sweep your cape and leap off into the night. And so since we're just doing a quick example here, let's say, cool, that's the end of the mission. We succeeded. We claimed the crown and sometimes missions are pretty short, maybe not that short, but they can be, they can be pretty contained, especially early ones. I think it's fine to have them be relatively straightforward or done quickly one way or another. And so, yeah, you seize the crown and you escape into the night. All of your friends are left wondering who is that mysterious masked hero who has now seized the crown for herself or does she give it to them later? I guess we'll see. And so that's it for the mission. And we move on to Fallout. And so... In Fallout, the director will roll on a little table and it'll give me some prompts for what extra consequences might follow from the success of your mission. So as an example, we might say that an enemy acts against the group is one of the prompts I might pull. And it could be that, yeah, like you seize the crown and Queen Charybdis knows this and she like sends her agents to bully or abduct a friend of yours, something like that. Like some bad other thing happens, which you might need to deal with down the line, right? And so in addition to that, in Fallout, there's a little bit of bookkeeping that we do where some tracks adjust and some points move around and stuff like that, that we don't need to get into the details of tonight, for our example. But at that point, that's the end of one episode and we cycle back to obligation and we carry on with our story. So congratulations, (laughs) we made it through. We get to find out as we continue play, what becomes of the Nebula crown, who ends up holding it. Does Hume rise to be a competent nemesis to Lady Vengeance? All of these things are then ongoing stuff that we figure out in the course of play. Yeah, I love that. And I love the fact that this is a character that I just set up in, in a character creation and this NPC who immediately became relevant and is now my nemesis. And already in this game, I can see that maybe I might resolve this rivalry through understanding and forgiveness rather than fighting, because I'm sure that whatever dark bargain Professor Hume is going to make to gain power 
it's going to hurt him way more than it's actually going to end up hurting me. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we don't know when you make up Professor Hume, like, how important yeah. is that character or isn't he, right? Like, it could be that he wasn't there and we met some other character. So, yeah, it's just nice to always have some a cast of characters that you can pull from and who ends up being significant or not, we find out. I think you mentioned these tracks and I think it would be good to explain that a little bit more. As the director, you have a sheet in front of you. Rather, the group has a series sheet sitting in front of them, which tracks something about the campaign. And I think the most important thing that it tracks are these two progress bars that are kind of racing against each other. One progress bar is basically the bad guy wins or the, or the darkness wins. And the other progress bar is tracking our progress towards stopping it. Yeah, so I can talk about those in a little more detail here, actually. So, so yeah, in Fallout, we're going to look at two tracks. One is the investigation track and the other is called the abyss track. And so the investigation track, that's what you filled earlier in downtime when you, you know, investigated your enemies and were looking for the nebula crown. That gives us progress on this track. And both of these tracks are divided up into three tiers. And for the investigation track, as you fill up the tiers, that makes it easier to take on bigger and more important missions because the missions are also organized into tiers. And so you need to know what's going on and chase down what your adversaries are up to in order to effectively counter them. And also, this is the way that you as the protagonists are going to learn stuff. You're going to be asking the director questions. It's going to, you're actually going to get information. It's not just a track that's filling. And so in the follow phase, uh, the investigation track drops by half because leads go cold and you need to get new information, but you're trying to kind of keep up with that and keep filling it. And then also we're going to put some, uh, some progress into the abyss track. And the abyss track is like the flip side of the investigation track. That's Queen Charybdis looking into <laughs> you and like your meddling and who these people are. Who might Lady Vengeance actually be? She wants to know and she's trying to find out. And so anytime you complete a mission, there's always a little bit that advances here, but there are also some conditions which might cause it to advance more. For example, that poison promise where Hume swears vengeance and will make whatever bargain he needs to gain power. One of the things I meant to look for as a director is if a character succumbed to the adversary in some important way. And I think that definitely qualifies and that would advance this abyss track a little more. Essentially, we're in a race, right? We want to fill up our investigation track and take on the biggest mission, the tier three mission for our series called Brave the Abyss. We want to do that before the abyss gets to us, right? Before Queen Charybdis finds out who we are and organizes some counterattack against us or whatever. Yeah. So there's a tension in the course of a season of play about who gets there first, whether the adversary or the protagonists kind of have the upper hand and are able to try to move their goals forward and defeat their opponent. Uh, and so that's kind of an important pacing mechanic that exists within the game. Uh, and everyone's kind of keeping an eye on it, but the director is responsible for the district. So I would be marking notches in that as the pose and promises are made, etc. This is a really cool mechanic. I think it adds a lot of tension and drama to the game, just gives a sense of pacing to the, to the campaign or the series. And I assume when that in investigation track halves, it kind of feels terrible, but I, I like it when the game system is mean so that if I'm running the game, I don't have to be mean. I, I really want my place to succeed. It's just, you know, it's a tough game. Yeah. And 
Like you always keep some, right? It drops by half. It doesn't drop by a flat amount. So you're chipping away at it. You're making progress, even though it does. Yeah, it gets that feeling of like, oh, yeah, we got to keep working. it. I am super excited for this game to come out properly. I'm super excited for people to find it and play it. And I think as of right now, recording and, and probably publishing, it's still not in general distribution yet, right? No, I think you can still pre-order the game right now. We did our backer kit crowdfunding back in June, I think it was. And we're hoping it'll be on the shelf like end of this year, beginning of next year. So like end of 2023, beginning of 2024. But uh, if they go to backer kit and they back it there right now, they will get the fully finished digital copy though. Exactly. All right, that's it for the Girl by Moonlight teaching episode. This was a huge effort to finish. I have generally been struggling with a bunch of audio issues. And you might notice that my voice in this episode sounds quite different from the last few. Well, I had to basically replace my whole computer to fix my audio woes. It was an old computer that was kind of dying slowly, taking any attempt at audio fidelity with it. But this new PC is great and I am really grateful for my patrons over at Patreon for their monthly contributions that help me, that allow me to make decisions like this, like, you know, replacing my dying computer. If you'd like to join them, I would really appreciate that. Head over to patreon.com slash IndieRPG and while you're there, maybe let me know which game you think I should do next. Well, signing off, like Marx used to say, does Indie need you? Yes, indeed and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and argon, kryptonium, and radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard, and there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered.